0: You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities.
1: Uh, Yes, I do believe that value traps exist, but they exist for reasons that most speculators don't understand.
2: Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and you're in for a treat today. We have another discipleship uh, session with Rick Rule. He's got four and a half decades of experience speculating in natural resources. So we get to glean a little bit from him. Joining me is Brian Brian Lenny of juniorstockreview.com to ask some questions. And in the last month, I've received probably five or six emails from newer mining stock speculators. And I just want to point out something that Rick said in the last session with Brian and me in which he said, you don't have to be the smartest or most connected person in this sector to be successful. You just have to be smarter than the other 10,000 idiots that you're competing against. So remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So Rick's here to give us some sight. Rick, thanks for joining us again.
1: Always a pleasure. I just took my glasses off, so I have two dysfunctional eyes, but anyway, let's get to it.
2: (laughs) All right, well, your brain works well. (laughs) Brian, I'm gonna swing it over to you. Uh,
0: You got some questions prepared for Rick. Let's give him the first one, please. Excellent. Okay. Um, So in my view, uh, investing in companies that are selling for less than their worth is integral to consistent success in the resource sector. Um, In saying this, I think investors do have to be wary of value traps. And I'll define a value trap as a company that never is able to escape the market discount. First, do you agree that value traps exist? um, Or is it just a matter of investors being wrong? Um, And secondly, if you do agree that value traps exist, Do you have advice for steering clear of them? Uh,
1: That's a great question. And in fact, a great statement. Uh, Yes, I do believe that value traps exist, but they exist for reasons that most speculators don't understand. Uh, They exist as an example because they might be lifestyle companies uh, where there's a good range of assets, but where the management team is more interested in their salaries and emoluments than they are in uh, continuing the assets. Um, I would also say that uh, while while a value trap is unpleasant, uh, a value trap is a less egregious sin than buying an overpriced promotion. Uh, With a value trap, it's likely that you lose time. Or perhaps if you're impatient, lose 25 or 30% of your money, which, while not unpleasant, is much more pleasant than losing 70 or 80% of your money, which is normally what happens to speculators who buy uh, massive online promotions with no value whatsoever. The most important part of your statement was, though, that uh, at least understanding the value of what you're buying is your first consideration. Everybody buys uh, micro-cap stocks because they're looking for hyperbolic upside. But success in speculation is at once uh, chasing upside, but measuring your downside. And understanding the value inherent in the company within tolerable ranges, you'll never get it right, uh, but you have to get it more right than your competition. Understanding that uh, and limiting your downside is just as important as anticipating your upside.
2: Rick, would in a value trap situation in the resource sector, are your two biggest risks like debt to where a creditor could foreclose on an asset? And I've seen Sprout Lending do that. And then also the management's ability not to finance the project to completion.
1: Well, I would suggest that too much debt detracts from value. So I would never be caught in, quote, a value trap with expensive assets that were unfinanceable. Uh, So at the beginning of your statement, uh, I think there's a fallacy in place. Companies that have no visible means uh, of continuance have no value whatsoever. Uh, I would suggest that a value trap uh, might be a company that's run by a has-been, somebody who was successful in his or her youth, uh, used their reputation to attract capital, uh, bought good assets. But is uninterested in promotion, i.e., uninterested in lowering their cost of capital, and less interested in moving their assets on uh, than they are, you know, poking around in the summer season in northern BC looking for gold and catching fish. Uh, most of the value traps that I have suffered through uh, have been involved in backing has beens that didn't have uh, the drive or the energy to build companies any longer.
2: When I brought up debt, I was thinking of an asset that didn 't yet have debt, but they were about to do the capex financing in order to bring it in production so that 's kind of what I had in mind in in that instance uh,
1: that's a different circumstance i wouldn't define that as a value trap. I would suggest that that's a, that's a circumstance where a technically competent investor who uh, can stand the so called boring period uh, the period leading up to financing. Uh, and before commissioning, uh, that's an, an extremely attractive part of the value creation lifestyle, or life cycle, pardon me, but it can easily take three years. Uh, one of the things that's defined whatever success I've enjoyed as an investor is the understanding that uh, three years is a relatively short period of time. If you're substituting patients for risk, Uh, I happen to like companies in the boring period because I can use the bankable feasibility study to determine better than I could independently what the value is about. And if the company is selling at a price that is a substantial discount to that, I know, well, I don't know, but it's more likely than not that on successful completion, assuming that they can achieve successful completion, economic completion, the stock is going to re-rate. Going back to our prior interview, you'll remember that I love circumstances where my yes answer is baked in the cake uh, and the question simply becomes time. Uh, I love questions where the uh, answer begins with when rather than if. And the value trap that you describe is to me a value opportunity.
0: Brian, any follow-ups? Um, well, I, the, the next question that I have is, is about noise and it kind of follows in with a bunch of this stuff and how uh, different narratives can float around um, from the different commentators in the market. So, you know, there is a lot of noise, media, uh, commentators, inflation, deflation, the pandemic, jobs report, you know, consumer spending and such. Um, it's a bombardment of information. Um, how do you sort through the noise and focus on what really matters?
1: Uh, I would say the noise, noise, the background information, the macro picture is useful for me in sector selection. As an example, I'm overweighting precious metals right now because the macro suggests that the wind is and will be in precious metal sales, uh, particularly because the prices have declined so much for the equities in the last 12 months. But I don't pay much attention to all of that with regards to the companies. Uh, The broad categories where I allocate my capital uh, are maybe macro-oriented, but all, everything I do with regards to companies is micro-oriented. It's all about who the people are, what the projects are, uh, whether the processes by which they propose to test their thesis are, in my point of view, valid, you know, Brian, probably 3,000 or 4,000 times in my career, uh, some hopeful newbie has said to me, Rick, if the price of gold goes to $2,000, which I think it will, how will that affect the fortunes of uh, amalgamated orangutan or consolidated moose pasture? And I have to say as gently as I'm still able. You know, if the price of something that a company doesn't have any of goes up, it shouldn't impact the valuation of that company. Remember that consolidated orangutan and amalgamated moose pasture are looking for gold. They don't have any. And if the price of a substance that you don't have any of goes up, it doesn't really impact your intrinsic value. It might impact the story around you, but it's irrelevant. Uh, And so I guess also in terms of noise, The source is important to me. Uh, If there was uh, somebody who used to make their living baking bread, who now has an online forum about penny mining stocks, uh, I might like their writing style or their speaking style, uh, but I see no apparent reason why their expertise in baking bread is transferable to securities analysis. And I tend, other than for amusement, Uh, to avoid listening to them. And there are some very large online forums that are run by people who have absolutely superb communication skills. Uh, But uh, I see limited value in attempting to uh, absorb knowledge from them, given their background. Similarly, uh, there are some company promoters uh, who, uh, while they have evident sales skills, Uh, you know, they'd be very, very good in the used car business uh, or in the shadier parts of the insurance business. But when you peel back the pitch to something that's company specific, when you ask them as an example, uh, what's the primary unanswered question uh, in terms of exploration concerning your property? uh, How do you ground truth? it? In other words, how do you uh, identify that as the most important question? And how do you propose to test that thesis? Very often people will say to me, well, Rick, I've never thought of it in that regard, which means that the big unanswered question is, uh, will their options go in the money and will their salary continue to be paid 18 months from now? Questions that are, of course, critical to them, but of no consequence to me.
0: Um, Economic studies come with varying levels of confidence. Uh, Not only this, but depending on other factors such as management team, upfront capital costs, jurisdiction, um, the the market further discounts the company's value relative to the calculated MPV. Are there any rules that you follow uh, for discounting companies relative to their MPV?
1: I think you described the process very well, Brian. Uh, The uh, economic studies, be it a PEA, Uh, a PFS, a BFS, have varying degrees of accuracy. They become more accurate, of course, the more studies, the more voluminous that the studies have been done. Uh, That is a very, very, very good uh, background valuation document. Uh, After you have that, you need to begin to do some hard work or you need to ask your financial advisor to do some hard work. Are the assumptions that went into the study Valid? Uh, Are the mining costs that they have uh, used to determine the net present value realistic in similar circumstances? Are the input costs uh, realistic in various circumstances? We've seen many bankable feasibility studies where the construction costs in several key components were, in our own opinion, 50% understated. Relative to other bankable feasibility studies that we've seen for similar types of challenges. I'm not suggesting that every investor out there uh, should develop a granular knowledge of mine construction, but I am suggesting that speculators who are wagering substantial amounts of money based on valuations that come off BFSs have access at least to uh, advisors who can do that sort of work. Understanding that you'll never get it exactly right. You know, if the BFS is a a billion seven, uh, you know, something like that, that you can count on the fact that the actual uh, uh, value over time will be 2 billion one or a billion four. (laughs) In other words, the search for perfection is a form of procrastination, but you have to do some of the work. Uh, You have to use that as a baseline. And then much as you suggested in the question, uh, you can ice the cake, if you will. Uh, You can assign a premium to a BFS if it is in the hands of an absolutely first-rate team whose resumes give you confidence that they are suited to the task at hand. Uh, in other words, people who are familiar with building deposits of that deposit style and in that uh, geographic, social and political terrain, you can add or subtract uh, evaluation valuation mentally based on the people. Uh, similarly, you can add or subtract value by looking back at the track record of the same people during the phases of exploration that led up to the bankable feasibility study. Did they do what they said they were going to do? Uh, were they able to raise capital in a fairly non-dilutive fashion? Did they take advantage of the market or were they being taken advantage of by their own emotion? Uh, it's important that the investor think like this. Not think like, got a hunch, bet a bunch. Uh, Or my online forum populated by butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, and strippers uh, sort of suggested that this stock was going to go to the moon. Uh, You know, all that kind of stuff is amusing, but it isn't part of the investment process.
2: Rick, with all the inputs and assumptions that go into calculating an NPV, you often see developers in their presentation do a comparison and they show how undervalued they are relative to peers. Do you just throw that slide out or does that have any meaning to you?
1: I, I don't throw it out because I use that as part of the upside calculation. Uh, in other words, if today's market conditions continue, which they never do, uh, they change, but that's a base. Uh, what might I expect as an upside? I, you know, When I'm interviewing companies, particularly very small companies, Sub hundred million dollar market cap companies. Uh, One of my first questions is, "What's your company worth?" Uh, And not what is it worth in a market to butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, but rather, what could you sell your assets to? Who could you sell your assets to now? Who are they strategic to, and what are they likely to pay? You know, very often somebody will come to me, and you know, they have forty thousand hectares of moose pasture in northern BC, uh, and they say, "Well, a." You know, a study by Haywood or Canaccord suggests that the median price per hectare of moose pasture in northern B.C. is, you know, $2,500 a hectare or something like that, uh, as though all hectares were created equal. Uh, These rules of thumb are really easy to understand. The problem with them is they're worthless. They have no relation to anything. Because they're easy to understand, people grasp them. They think they've done some work or something like that. Um, So, relative valuations I mean, in a good market, uh, the worst piece of junk shell on the planet might have a market capitalization of $15 million. Uh, It might have an actual float of seven shares, you know, really completely controlled. That $15 million market cap doesn't relate to Uh, the asset value, the liquidation value at all. And so it doesn't relate to your downside uh, at all. I'm not trying to say that you always have to buy dimes on the dollar. I'm not trying to say that you could only buy a $15 million market cap if you think it's worth $30 million. That isn't the way it works. But having a sense of what the liquidation value is tells you something about your downside and you shouldn't consider your upside without considering your downside at the same moment.
2: And if there's debt on an asset, your downside could be zero, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, completely. You know, I I always tell the managers that come to me to borrow money, listen, this is a reward transfer. It's not a risk transfer. I'm gonna get paid back. Whether or not you are gonna get paid back is up to you. Uh, It isn't my my goal to get all the goodies. Uh, It's my goal to get back my stated rate of return. Uh, And if that means that your value goes to zero, that's your problem, not my problem. Uh, if debt is actually a cheaper substitute to equity, it's a very good thing. Uh, you know, we've helped various issuers, uh, the Lundeen family, uh, Ross Beatty, Bob Quatermain, uh, Clive Johnson, uh, the guys behind First Quantum, all when they were little tiny companies, there were points in time when taking on debt to complete various milestones, be it an acquisition, be it a preliminary economic assessment, short term debt. Uh, with the idea that that capital would allow you to answer unanswered questions and lower ultimately your equity cost of capital. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool. But shareholders need to understand that a company that has no visible means of repayment that borrows money is taking a real risk.
2: Rick, in our last interview uh, with me and Brian, you mentioned that a good place for an average speculator to look is like a shell company that good people are putting together. They're going to acquire an asset and you can get the re-rate, a multiple re-rate just from the awareness marketing factor. But is another place you look based on what you just shared, you know, good assets that are in receivership and you're paying attention, not just to a management team, but an asset and where that asset might end up.
1: I I would use the phrase interesting rather than good. I think that most speculators aren't willing to do the work to understand the process of receivership. And most speculators lack the patience to uh, play the shell game. The shell game is a truly spectacular game for somebody managing a portfolio of less than $5 million. Uh, a, a million dollar portfolio divided into sort of twelve or fifteen shells that are controlled by very 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 good people who are working on something else now and will work on your shell later. For people who are patient, uh, that's the. I, I mean, it's it's a superbly good game, but remember that it comes with a lot of work and it requires a lot of patience. Uh, if you're buying something at ten cents that's inactive and a holder gets bored, your 10 cent piece of paper becomes a 5 cent piece of paper. It becomes a 5 cent piece of paper for no other reason than somebody sold, and there was nobody there to buy. And you have to have the courage of your convictions, and you have to have the patience to play the game. Uh, If you are interested in that, I would recommend that the people who listen to this interview and are interested in that strategy, uh, Google John Kaiser, who is the author of the phrase, (laughs) I think, bottom fish. Uh, and who has made a 30-year career uh, of really very respectable returns uh, at less than average risk by understanding how the plumbing uh, of the exchange works.
2: Rick, just to share with listeners the opportunity and resource stocks you foresee, if you had a million dollars that starting today, you were going to invest in the sector, but you could only invest in the open market, not private placements, not deals your colleagues or associates bring you, how much do you think that million dollars would be worth in five years from now?
1: I understand the question. I actually have no earthly answer. Uh, There are so many variables out there. If I was, it also depends on the speculator or the investor. If, If I were a younger me, that is if I was going to be extremely aggressive, wouldn't need to be in private placements, by the way, the private placements are uniformly overpriced today. Uh, I would expect a 35% compound internal rate of return. If you are engaging in an activity where the downside is you lose half your money, uh, you need uh, a, th- a, a prospective 35% compound internal rate of return. If I was talking about uh, you know an older retired investor, maybe a guy in a light blue shirt uh, with a gold tie, uh, a bald guy, uh who uh, doesn't need to make a lot of money but doesn't want to lose any money uh you know i would likely be invested in more lending activities uh, where my prospective downside was zero but my expected rate of return was 7 or 8% uh, so it, the question i understand the question uh uh, I understand too that the answer, uh, had I fallen for it, uh, would have generated really tremendous clickbait. Uh, but I'm just I wouldn't too do old that to, to you, Rick. I really wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I see some of the headlines on my interviews, and I just shake my head and cry. <laughs> uh, I, I'll tell you this. Um, life isn't about certainties. Audiences want simple declarative statements. And when I was a young man, I was hardwired to please people. So I would try to give them simple declarative statements until I learned that I was actually doing harm, Uh, trying to please people. I was doing harm. Life is about probabilities. Uh, It's about risk versus reward. Uh, It's about uh, a, a market that has so many variables in it that to really try to get it right, you're trying to know the unknowable, which is really a waste of time. Um, given who I am, uh, what I need to do, my own disciplines, uh, I believe that the <clears throat> precious metals price over the next five years won't be merely higher than it is today. I believe it's more likely than not to be sharply higher than it is today. Does this mean it's going to happen? No. Life is about probabilities. It's all about probabilities. But when I look at the macro wins, and I'm picking on precious metals just to focus the audience, when I look at the combination, we've gone through this litany before, of quantitative easing, of debt and deficits, of negative real interest rates, and of precious metals market share relative to other investment and savings products, uh, I think it's much more likely than not that the gold price surprises people to the upside. People ignore history in favor of their emotional response to experience in the immediate past. So the fact that gold, as an example, has come down in price in nine months weighs more heavily on people than the fact that for 2000 years, it's been an insurance policy against the depredation of uh, other forms of savings products. My success or or part of my success has been due to the fact that history is more important to me than my experiences in the immediate past. And I did an interview not too long ago about the silver squeeze Uh, I think, and, you know, the silver squeeze is a very, very, very interesting topic, but people uh, are acting as though it is a cast in stone fundamental that a bunch of retail buyers can drive the silver market. I believe we're going to have a real silver squeeze. Uh, A real silver squeeze comes about when you look at the fact that precious metals and precious metals equities uh, as a class are less than one half of 1% of total savings and investment assets in the United States of America. The 30-year mean is 1.5%. So if quantitative easing, debt and deficits, and negative interest rates, which are really three tremendous fundamentals for gold, uh, lead gold merely, and I use gold as a euphemism for precious metals, merely to... Uh, revert to mean, that means demand for precious metals triples in the largest savings and investment market in the world. And I think that's what's going to happen. This isn't meant to sell people gold stocks, by the way. This is meant to appeal to the way that people should think. If something is more likely than not to happen, uh, in other words, if the probabilities are on your side Uh, And if you have the patience to understand that markets aren't in the near term, rational, probably ever, uh, then you are going to shade the composition of your portfolio towards those sectors where the probabilities are that you're going to succeed.
2: So, Rick, based on what you just said, is it more important for the speculator to understand sociology and human behavior than it is financial balance sheets?
1: No, it's more important to understand financial balance sheets. Uh, it's much more important. Money's made on the micro. Money's allocated partly on the macro, but money's made on the micro. Uh, it, it, it would make sense, I suspect, for some generalist investors to simply buy an ETF, figure out if they want to have 7% of their net worth or 11% of their net worth in precious metals, and then decide then, uh, okay, uh, I don't want to spend much time at this, so I'm going to buy an ETF. I personally... Have a hard time buying ETFs because I look at a precious metals ETF, I see 40 companies in there, and there are 20 of them that I wouldn't buy with somebody's money whom I disliked. The idea that somebody's going to charge me a 40 basis point management fee to own 20 companies that I couldn't own with a straight face is not my idea of a good time. But I can do the work for somebody who's a dentist, you know, who makes a couple hundred bucks an hour, 300 bucks, whatever it is doing dentistry. The idea that he or she would Uh, divert the time that could be profitably employed in dentistry into securities analysis is a bit stupid and and they might want to buy an ETF. So for that type of person, for a generalist, who's allocating, um, you know, based on macro factors, I get it. For somebody who's listening to a a, a podcast called mining stock education, somebody who is likely to be driven to alpha uh, rather than market related beta uh, the company-specific stuff, the micro, is what matters, not making mistakes.
2: And Brian, do you have another question about how we can assess these companies so we
0: can invest on the spe- in the specific <laughs> companies? Uh, the gold market is weak. Uh, share prices have been continued falling over the last few weeks. Uh, with the market trending downwards, some investors are wary of deploying cash uh, into the market because they <laughs> think they're going to be able to buy it cheaper. Um, In situations like this, where uncertainty is so high and share prices are falling uh, for no known reason other than sentiment, how do you deploy cash into your top rated companies?
1: Well, first of all, let's say I screw it up. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Going back to March of this year, when the oil price briefly went negative, uh, the world's leading Uh, authority on oil, energy, and the economy was a 16-year-old Swedish high school dropout Uh, and where Exxon got kicked out of the Dow 30. Exxon is one of the finest deployers of capital uh, in the last 50 years, and the oil business will, in fact, go away 50 years from now. When Exxon got kicked out of the Dow 30 uh, and fell predictably, I thought it would fall more And I didn't buy it. And this is the height of stupidity. This is a one-off event. I know that the oil price is going to come back because I know that when people go to their garage and turn the key to the right, they want the car to start. you know. And I knew that Exxon's capital deployment track record wasn't going to fall. I knew the value of their assets. The idea that Exxon was generating a 12% real yield (laughs) at $50 oil. The idea that I was waiting for the stock to fall further, given the fact that I've been in the business for 45 years, is basically a felony. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to jail for it, but I've certainly suffered uh, from castigating myself. And, and I think that's a real problem. Uh, Bernard Baruch you know, was a pretty good trader back in the old days. And he once said that the only guy who ever bought at the bottom and sold at the top was a liar. It didn't happen. Uh, this isn't about getting things exactly right. Uh, this is about getting things right uh, in, in the context of who you are and, and the information that you can deploy. Listen, Brian, when I um, and, and I think I said this in our last interview. When I look back at my real long ball home runs, the 10 baggers, the 20 baggers, there are very few of those that didn't fall in price 40 or 50 percent. During the time I held them, uh, I look at Pan American Silver. You know, we did the first financing there at fifty cents. Pretty good market. Uh, a few good market commentators in those days liked it. The stock went to a buck and a half. Then it went to two and a quarter. And you know, from fifty cents, the stock goes to two and a quarter. You're feeling, you're pretty smart, you know. Uh, then it falls from two and a quarter to a buck and a quarter, and you're feeling less smart the fact that it fell from two and a quarter to a buck and a quarter didn't mean that the silver assets went away uh, or Ross Beatty lost brain cells or, or that silver wasn't a good place to be. You know, then the stock goes from a buck and a quarter to $4 and you're feeling pretty smart again, you know, uh, you know, then it falls from $4 to $2 and you're doubting yourself who could it go to dollar sixty? I mean, I know $2 is cheap, but could it go to dollar sixty? Who cares? You know, who cares? The upshot of all that is the stock goes from 50 cents to $45 and probably four or five times in the journey. And the journey only took six years, which is not an eternity, although it is to many speculators. Uh, The stock price probably fell by half four or five times. Uh, The idea that I could have bottom-ticked it and top-ticked it along the way isn't even a fantasy. Uh, The thought is stupidity. And it doesn't matter.
0: Um, So now I've got a situational a uh, question for you. So you've completed extensive due diligence on a company to the best of your ability. Right. Uh, you understand the investment thesis and you decide to buy on right. the horizon are some major catalysts, like a resource update or an economic study. Things are going well about, but about a month from the expected release of the news, a large short position opens uh, in your experience. What is the best course of action in a situation like this?
1: I love, <laughs> circumstances where the shorts are against me. Uh, That's like uh, 68 better than sex. (laughs) Uh, A big short position is a big buy ticket. And if you're right and they're wrong, they have to buy higher. There's an old poem, Brian, from before your time that described shorts. He who sells what isn't hisn't got to buy it back or go to prison. Uh, there is, I, I mean, we, we had, I'm not going to say engineered, but I'm going to say facilitated short traps in silver standard, Pan American, BEMA, first quantum. The circumstances where we were backing good entrepreneurs with good assets in bad markets, and in those days, the pros saw a long up trip, tick, and they'd short it. Uh, some legitimate brokerage houses would short stocks when they had too much on their books on margin as a natural hedge. And when we saw circumstances as we did, certainly in Silver Standard or Pan American, where uh, uh, ten or fifteen percent of the stock on issue was short but where the float was only 50% of the stock on issue because the control blocks were very, very, very firm. Uh, What that meant was assuming that the news that came out was steady and positive, the shorts had no prayer of covering uh, at market. And honestly, uh, we delivered some absolutely religious experiences to people who were short, high quality companies. Uh, in bad markets. I remember on a couple occasions uh, seeing very large short positions in companies that we had a lot of faith in and explaining the nature of the short position to high-quality commentators, say a Doug Casey, uh, and saying, Doug, you know, there's two things happening here. One has to do with the fact that the company is selling for less than it's worth. There's a series of unanswered questions that the company is funded to answer, Uh, but more particularly uh, the short position uh, requires 70 or 80 days of normal trading to cover. Uh, If you continued with the circumstance that allowed the short syndicates to get themselves. In other words, if you gave them even more rope to hang themselves and they greedily took it when you sprung the trap, uh, a stock that should normally have gone from a buck and a half to three could go from a buck and a half to seven uh and, and i experienced this on you know in that part of my career in the 80s and early 90s uh numerous occasions there is nothing i like more than a good short position against a company that i really like
2: were you making money off a of- GME and AMC then with everybody else when they saw that short squeeze possibility?
1: No, because I didn't understand those businesses. Uh, There's a qualitative difference between me squeezing shorts in Pan American silver run by somebody I've known my whole life and AMC or GameStop. Uh, I don't know enough to know whether the shorts are right or wrong. I don't have an opinion in those kinds of stocks, but in stocks where I consider myself to be perhaps the best informed outsider in the world, then, I mean, I like asymmetric fights, Uh, you know, being as old as I am, I want a circumstance where where you're the referee and the boxer or what? (laughs) Absolutely. I don't believe in fair fights in the markets. (laughs) And the idea where there's a, there's a financial syndicate that's lined up against me because they know that the median value proposition in the juniors is lousy uh but i also know that i'm involved in a one in a thousand company that's just spectacular you know a, a 10 million share short position is a 10 million dollar a 10 million share buy ticket it's up to the market whether that buy ticket gets filled higher or lower
2: and you are a bouncer, we should point out too, Rick, so you know a thing or two about <laughs> boxing, right? <laughs> in the old days,
1: in the old days.
2: It's been a few decades uh, though, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I have to make up for cunning and guile now when I lack in strength <laughs> and speed.
2: <laughs> uh, Brian, any more questions? Rick, we really appreciate your time here. No, that's all for me. Thank okay, you. I guess I have one more, Rick. Um, when you see an exploration company and you always see their stock trending up before some sort of positive announcement, does that make you think poorly of management or do you just say, hey, listen, the drillers tell their cousin and they tell their network at the bar and it's just going to happen?
1: The latter, mostly. I mean, mostly I'm involved with people that I know and love and trust. Now, I have to tell you, and I'm not going to name names, uh, but there are uh, a, a few explorationists who I've backed for a long time. And when I'm talking to them, they don't have to give me inside information. I can tell by their smugness. Um, I mean, I've had this happen and I'm not suggesting I have some great spider sense, but you're talking to a, to a person who is an experienced explorations, which means they've experienced probably more failure than success in their career. And you're talking to them and there's just sort of this calm, smug smile when they're taking you through the geological model sometimes they make a mistake and they say, you know, I think that this happens uh, when they're saying that this happens, uh, there's a, a couple of drill holes there that they don't have any results from. And it just walk away as ah, gotcha. <laughs> 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 they, don't, they don't have to give you material, non-public information. And I'm not the only one who can do this. Uh, you know, there's people calling these guys all the time, people who have known them and backed them in the past. There is also certainly circumstances <clears throat> where an experienced speculator will get a call from a guy who's working on a drill rig. Uh, I bought a lot of beer for drilling crews. I mean, a lot of beer in my career for guys on drilling crews
2: in Nevada. Then you got or everywhere. No, com- no comment. No comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't. I don't know
1: what the statute is on this stuff. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that one. Well, well, Rick, uh, really appreciate what 45 minutes or whatever this was, another uh, discipleship session. So uh, we hope to do these periodically. And thanks again for your time.
1: I enjoy them. I'd like if I made a renew. Yes, please do. My offer. Uh, Anybody who cares what I think about their stocks as opposed to stocks in general can find out by visiting a website, actually uh, a new website, rankings at ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Rule Investment Media being one word, Uh, enter your natural resource resource stocks, please no pot stocks, please no cryptocurrencies, Uh, and I'll rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. And I will comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. But once again, rankings at ruleinvestmentmedia.com.
2: And that's an email. So it's going to be an email that they go to, Rick, or is it? It's a a website. So ruleinvestmentmedia.com forward slash rankings, just to clarify, would that be the domain
1: uh you know i'm gonna have to check that for you
2: i'll get it from you and i'll put it in the show notes so everybody just go to the show notes
1: to get the right one fantastic failing that you can always go to the old one uh which is um forward slash rankings both are supported
2: all right well thank you gentlemen for your time today
1: thank you was fun